Hello! Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series. Fantastic Fiction is a monthly speculative fiction reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month, hosted by Ellen Datlow and me, Matthew Kressel. We spotlight well-known and up-and-coming science fiction, fantasy, and horror authors, and admission is always free. We publish a monthly podcast and video so people who can't attend the in-person event can still enjoy the readings. If you'd like to support the series, you can donate at kgbfantasticfiction.org slash support. Anyway, on to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Tonight is Fantastic Fiction at the KGB Bar. Thank you all for coming. It's been, what, three months since we've done this in person? This is pretty awesome. So I'm, I'm glad everyone is here. This is, this is amazing. Um, so before I begin, I just want to say that the uh, KGB Bar here has been hosting this series for almost 20 years. It's a long, long time. And they've never... Never charge a cover to come into the bar. All they ask, all they ask, one thing they ask of you, whether you are a lush like myself or you don't drink a drop, buy a drink, please. Buy a drink and support the bar. That's all we ask, right? So during the pandemic, we asked you to support the bar and, and the series itself supported the bar. And now that hopefully, fingers crossed or whatever you want to cross, all sorts of weird limbs and tails and whatnot, we hope that this is the beginning of a new period for in-person meetings and all that good stuff. So please, please, please support the bar, support the series, keep it going. Buy a drink, thank you. And tip your bartender who's working hard to keep you hydrated. Thank you. So uh, as I said, the series has been at the KGB bar for like 20 years. You can stay if you want. It's, it's cool. You're going to like it. It's ghost stories and horror stories. It's fine. It's not for everybody. It's totally cool. We're, we're all open. We're, whatever, whatever floats your boat. It's totally fine. Anyway, um, my co-conspirator tonight is Rajan Khanna. So Ellen Datlow is my normal co-conspirator. Uh, if you follow us at the KGBFantasticFiction.org website or on YouTube, we did a uh, live stream for, uh, shit, I don't know, 20-something months during the pandemic, on and off. And uh, we had a lot, of, a lot of great authors. We had N.K. Jemison read, uh, read for us, William Gibson. Um, yeah, it was just like a tons of people, and I'm like, I had too much to drink, so I can't remember anybody. Um, but uh, no, seriously, hey there. Friend of mine is in the audience. A lot of friends are in the audience. It's so awesome to see you all in person. Seriously, I've been like trapped at home like all of you for a long time, and it's it's amazing. And I just I hope this is something that lasts and continues. And I'm I'm feeling good about it. Um, so yes, uh, on to our first reader of the evening. Uh, oh, by the way, before I before I go a little bit further. Both authors have books for sale. What do you got for sale? So Leanna has... Uh, my Spectral City series. Spectral yeah. City. Which is a psychic girl gang and their favorite friendly ghosts solve crime in 1899 Manhattan. That sounds amazing. I love very, it. Very found family. Spooky cute. Love it. And John, what do you got? I want her to announce mine. I, like <laughs> <laughs> I want her to announce everything we do from now on. I have Mr. White, which is uh, espionage and horror, and Rooster, which is crime, and The Isle, which is just straight up yeah. New England Gothic horror. Love yeah. it. Yeah. All right. So our, our uh, authors tonight, if you haven't figured it out already, if, you, if you're wondering where you are, it's Leanna Renee Heber and John C. Foster. So thank you both for, for joining us this evening uh, in person. And we appreciate, by the way, both of you being flexible because we didn't know if we were going to be able to do this in person because we were like watching the numbers pretty closely. So uh, our first reader tonight is Leanna Renee Heber. She's an actress, playwright, narrator, and award-winning author of gothic, gas lamp, fantasy novels for Tor and Kensington books, such as The Strangely Beautiful, Eternophiles, Spectra City series, and A Haunted History of Invisible Women, True Stories of America's Ghosts, co-written with Andrea James and Elizabeth Carey Mahon, Mahon. Mahon which I, I understand you're reading from tonight. 
I am. Oh, I love it. I'm excited. Uh, featured on TV shows like Mysteries at the Museum and Beyond the Unknown, discussing Victorian spiritualism, Leanna lectures around the country on paranormal and 19th century subjects. Here's Leanna Renee Hebert. All right. Hi, friends. So... I am so glad to be here with people in a room, in person, uh, talking about incorporeal people in rooms with people, scaring them. So uh, this is a great confluence of, of spirits, quite truly. Uh, I will be reading from A Haunted History of Invisible Women, True Stories of America's Ghosts, which is a nonfiction book, my, my nonfiction debut. Uh, and my co-author is Andrea Jaynes and Elizabeth Carey Mahone. We have, all three of us, chosen respectively 10 different women's ghost stories, and we talk about the contexts of the women, uh, both alive and dead. Sometimes stories were told about some of these women long before they died, like Sarah Winchester, for example. Um, we have a, a wealth of incredible information about their backstories, and we address some stereotypes uh, lobbied against women and other various power dynamics. Um, it's kind of the first of its kind. Uh, ghost storybooks haven't really taken this angle before, so we're really, really um, excited for this. It's going to be out August 30th. We would love to do a second volume, so please pre-order A Haunted History of Invisible Women so that we can do a second volume, because we could only fit in th 30 women, and there are just so many more stories we wanted to uh, include and we just didn't have the space. So uh, we hope we can make this a bit of a series. What I'm reading from tonight is I'm going to read um, the my introduction. Each one of uh, our sections is subdivided by stereotype or trope. So uh, I wrote um, the Mad Women introduction and I, you'll, you'll see it addresses this as a topic. And then I'm going to read for you a chapter I wrote called unreliable narrator and it is about a address that's very nearby and it is an address with which I have a complicated history and also because the address and I don't really get along and I always am very very freaked out by it I will probably tremble and shake a little bit that this is just gonna hopefully add to the dramatic tension of it. Um, this is my first public reading of this, so you get to see me freak out live and in person. And for those uh, listening at home, I am in fact shaking, so. All right, here we go, Mad Women. There's a long list that's been the subject of plenty of internet memes, the myriad behaviors and activities that could get a woman committed to an asylum in previous centuries whether it was reading too much, wanting to wear pants, wanting to vote, or perhaps just having normal human emotions, institutionalization was a threat for many who veered outside cultural norms, depending on their background, status, race, class, identity, and environment. A general discomfort with women's bodies, place, and sexuality crested to a near fever pitch during the 19th century amid radical industrial and global changes. This societal unease led to profound disconnect. Hysteria became an increasingly frequent diagnosis for any number of things, from mere exhibition of opinions to the concept of sexual independence, let alone living it. The era made a concerted effort to divorce women from sexual agency and heightened the divisive idea of a frailer, weaker sex. The idea that somehow women are inherently unstable has cast a long shadow through history. We're still battling the concept of a woman being too emotional to hold leadership positions here in the United States. Victoria Woodhull certainly faced that aspersion when she ran for president in 1872. Having come up from spiritualist circles, she used the concept of talking with the dead entirely for her own purposes, galvanizing those circles as a tool to become a public figure with radical politics. Speaking with spirits allowed for passions and convictions, especially those challenging the status quo, to take a broader stage. Woodhull's candidacy, however, was not taken seriously nationally. Many people thought her quite mad indeed. Having spent an over 20-year career studying, theatrically performing, and writing about 19th century perceptions, I can tell you that we're not over the restrictive constraints that era placed on every marginalized person and on women as a whole. There are a great many civil liberties activists fought for then that we're still fighting for now, only with slight changes in the language. 
It wasn't as though the era was without its passions and expressions. It's just that only some people were able to safely indulge their respective autonomies without comment, criticism, intervention of the law, or worse. Anything not heteronormative and gender binary adherent was aberrant. We're still clawing our way back from that repressive age, navigating the effects of narrow windows of expression, self-actualization, and opportunity. There are many aspects of sexuality, desire, and identity that weren't struck from either the FBI's lists of deviant behavior or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, until the mid-20th century. The science of mental health has thankfully progressed through the years. In the 1892 King's Handbook of New York City, when discussing the woman's ward of the New York City Asylum for the Insane on Blackwell's Island, a specific note warrants grim consideration. The patients are kept without restraint, and every possible effort is made to ameliorate their condition by allotting them some occupation to employ their minds. At least they aren't chaining up the inmates anymore. The handbook goes on to mention the recent founding and mission of an organization built to keep a necessary watchful eye on a flawed system. The Lunacy Reform Act, an anti-kidnapping league at 10 East 14th Street was founded in 1890 to protect sane persons against unjust and unlawful imprisonment in insane asylums and hospitals and to secure humane treatment and the protection of their legal and constitutional rights to those suffering from insanity. Legal and medical advice is freely given to all deserving applicants. Society still has a very hard time discussing, grappling with, and being honest about mental health. Calling someone crazy is a threat that often has consequences for the accused, whether a legitimate mental health condition is in play or not. People are all too eager to use that label on anyone or anything they don't like or agree with. The label of mad woman has often been ascribed to women who were simply bucking norms or ruffling feathers. That doesn't mean there aren't stories of legitimate mental health crises that pepper the ghost story landscape. As you'll see in these chapters, the idea of being mad is all a matter of perspective. Though none of these women had the ability to escape the label, their haunted histories would inevitably catch up with them. And now, an unreliable narrator, Jan Bryant Bartell of New York, New York, by yours truly. It is a cursed house and it has the final say. In 1855, a red brick townhouse was completed at 14 West 10th Street in Greenwich Village, around the block from the verdant, vibrant Washington Square Park. At first, 14 appears like any other fine residence on the block of utterly charming, beautiful townhouses, all sharing walls with the next address. Window boxes teem with flowers and bay windows reveal interior treasures. Trees on the block live lush and full, and the basement level patios are well kept, full of potted plants and bordered by wrought iron beauty. Emma Lazarus, author of The New Colossus, which stands on the Statue of Liberty, boldly declaring hope and refuge, once lived just a few doors down. Number 14 has fine brownstone detailing around black painted sills. Its wide first floor windows are dark from within. At a glance, passing by, nothing appears amiss, but pausing for closer examination, odd outliers reveal themselves. 14's red bricks bear a discoloration that none of the other structures on the block do, a strange residue. Even after a re recent renovation and cleaning of the building, it's still as if a dark mold, an inexplicable rot, has oozed out from mortar pores to mark the building with an eternal stain. Unlike the townhouses around 14 that have stoops that lift you up to beautiful glass doors with carved wooden details, the stairs to number 14 go down. One must descend to enter. A brownstone arch shades the underworld approach. There's a plaque on the side of the building before that shadowed stairwell stating that Mark Twain lived on the premises for a year from 1900 to 1901. His departure, it was said, was due to the fact that his wife couldn't keep up with the housework. Admittedly, an entire townhouse that had yet to be subdivided into apartments would be a great deal of upkeep without a full staff, but perhaps there was a darker reason. During my first days in the city, having moved to New York in 2005, I vividly recall wandering the neighborhood of West 10th Street and the areas around Washington Square Park while researching the setting of a paranormal novel. I came across one building that made me short of breath and uneasy, but didn't think much of it, not until I procured Ghosts of New York City by Therese Langenschmidt and paused at the mention of 14 West 10th, noting a quoted line from Shirley Jackson's definitive, definitive haunted house tale, The Haunting of Hill House. 
some houses are born bad. I correlated that address with the one that had made me queasy in passing and couldn't argue with that sentiment. Something was off, and it seems it had been for a very long time. No stranger to elements of horror in my fiction, I deemed the address a perfect setting for a novel, so I began drafting a book that followed several spirits and generations dealing with the house. The horror stories unfolded. Spindrift, Spray from a Psychic Sea by Jan Bryant Bartell is an out-of-print, hard-to-find memoir published in 1974 about the author's time living at both 16 and 14 West 10th Street. An off-Broadway stage actress of note with certain psychic sensitivities, a lecturer and writer from Maryland who had settled in New York as an adult, Bartell was in her 40s when writing Spindrift, but her health was fragile and kept deteriorating. Spindrift was one of the first books I read during my early days as a New Yorker, and it is the only book to be written exclusively about the address, though the house had already made numerous newspapers for being haunted. Hans Holzer, famous, famous ghost seeker of the city, published several accounts of this address, one of which Bartell was directly involved with, and he utilized narratives from various mediums. Results vary, but there was always something unsettling in the house. Consistent paranormal activity, shadows that moved, items that moved too, the feeling of being watched, an oppressive air. When Holzer published Ghosts I've Met, including Bartell's seance, Jan didn't feel Holzer got things right. Having omitted her most palpable haunted detail, the presence of a ghostly gray cat, the distaste his account left in her mouth became the impetus for her writing her own book about her experiences. Regardless of who tells the story of 14 West 10th, one through line remains unaltered. Whatever darkness took up root in the house, it did so early on and continues to cause trouble. All the authors of this book remember hearing something about an incident of 19th or early 20th century child abuse being picked up in a seance, but none of us can pin down exactly where we heard it, and each of us remembers it as being said to have happened in a different era or decade. Perhaps the mind simply wants to grasp for purchase and understanding when trying to conceptualize the horrific events that would happen there in 1980. I felt deeply uncomfortable many times while reading Spindrift, working on my own fiction simultaneously. One of the earliest ideas I had for that book involved a morbid past life trauma of a 19th century character, one who miscarried a child due to violence at the address. It was shocking then when I soon read an account of that same nature in Spindrift, a psychic picking up on that very malevolence. I felt as though I'd somehow stumbled on it like a mysterious radio transmission, a sense memory I couldn't have known and wasn't even of my own creation, just a discomforting precognition. Part of me felt even more compelled to continue my work. Part of me felt warned to walk away quickly. Things like that happened to Bartell too throughout the narrative. An odd passing thought, sight, or prompt would suddenly become strangely relevant the next day. Spray from a psychic sea. While still enveloped in Spindrift, I traveled to Chicago to attend a doctoral thesis dissertation given by one of my best friends, after which our party went to get celebratory tattoos, and the only rule was that the image had to be something personally meaningful. When considering what to have inked, I felt called to choose an entwined alpha and omega. It wasn't a symbol I'd thought much about before, but I liked the idea of it, the beginning and the end, noting faith, but also life cycles, the fullness of time, the past as prologue, and the future within reach. The next day, I resumed my reading, picked up Spindrift, turned the page, and Bartel's next chapter began with an ode to the Alpha and the Omega. I let the book drop from my hands as if I'd been scalded. Whenever I explain this, it never fails to evoke a violent shudder from the listener, the desire to crawl out of one's skin, the utter inexplicable strangeness of my choice of a meaningful but not top-of-mind symbol, then that symbol showing itself at the top of the next chapter I hadn't yet read makes me feel like I'm only adding to the chorus of unreliable narrators who have clamored about this house for years. I put the draft of fiction I'd been working on aside due to extreme unease about the psychic parallels, never to be picked back up again, deeming it a cursed manuscript about a cursed address. But I kept reading Spindrift, compelled. It isn't the most 
polished memoir, but I felt, being a bit energy sensitive myself, the depth of Bartel's struggle on the page, watching in dread and empathy as the house depleted her and tried her senses. Despite the narrative running off into myriad tangents, her experiences remain believable. She's enough of a skeptic not to let her imagination rule, but it's clear she's suffering from depression, in addition to increasingly frayed nerves, resulting from truly inexplicable things. Crashing noises when nothing was disturbed, a noxious smell of death that could overwhelm in one moment something sickly sweet in another, the sound of rustling taffeta when no one is in the room, a looming black miasma that would disappear through the wall. Her descent is undeniably compelling, heartbreaking, like the moments in a horror film when you keep shouting at the heroine to run, or the times you can't help but turn your head to look at a car crash. When Bartel moved from the top floor of number 16 to number 14, she had already lost her beloved dog, Penelope, whose fragile health had worsened as Bartel became more aware of her haunted surroundings. Tessa, the Bartel's next dog, was all too aware of spectral presences and reacted to them with similar unease, canines in a proverbial coal mine. Why Jan didn't vacate either 16 or 14 sooner seems to have been a mixture of not being believed by her amiable yet skeptical husband, her reluctance to leave the Greenwich Village area she adored, and the difficulties, as any New Yorker will tell you, of apartment hunting. When they left 16 for an apartment uptown, they were soon embroiled in a legal conflict with the upstairs neighbor. When an apartment became available in 14 West 10th Street, they returned to the neighborhood they dearly loved, Jan desperately needing peace and rest. But this address was no better than the one it shared a wall with. It was markedly worse. Bartel begins to count the ill and the dying at the address. Over 20 lives lost or irrevocably changed during her 14-year tenure, a high number for an address that only houses a few apartments. Bartel wrote, and here I quote from Spindrift, Fred was the first to, to remark on the absence of an elderly gentleman who lived with his wife on the third floor, East Wing. Shortly thereafter, I met the wife in the downstairs hall. She was clinging to the arm of a companion, her eyes red-rimmed from weeping. I didn't realize it, but she was going blind. While we were away, her husband had died, and now we began to see the tracings of a pattern. We knew, at least I knew. When we moved in, there were 10 families in the house, five in the East Wing, five in the West. Out of the 10, three had been decimated by death, all in the East Wing, and then the accelerated nightmare. The wife who had been left behind lost her sight completely. She went to her bed in the blind dark, taking her sleeping pills with her and never rose again." End quote. During this ongoing litany of death, Fred, Jan's husband, his appendix burst while battling pneumonia. Jan goes on to describe further losses in quick succession. A tenant is attacked outside the apartment and dies of his injuries. Another died by alcoholism, another by terminal cancer. The superintendent explained to Jan why he didn't live in the basement any longer. Not with the boots, them walking boots. They goes up and down, up and down, and ain't nothing attached to them. Then they disappear right through the wall. No, ma'am, if I'm next, I ain't gonna be down there waiting. The inevitability of Spindrift is unbearable. An actress who once starred in the paranormal classic Bell, Book, and Candle, Bartel's exploration of psychic waters veers further towards the undiscovered country. The title of the book is apt. Spindrift refers to the churning wake of a ship. The haunted premises of 10th Street cut the agitated waters of Bartel's sensitivities and the spray in their wake grew increasingly dangerous. The reader knows Bartel's fate. It is stated on the dust jacket of her memoir. Reading the book is one elaborate dread precognition. The house would take her in the end. Just as Bartel managed to escape 10th Street for New Rochelle, she died. The coroners listed her cause of death as a heart attack. 
only a few weeks after she had completed the manuscript. The book she'd told friends was a kind of catharsis. It was published posthumously. Transcribers working from her notes repeatedly fell ill, and the book nearly wasn't published at all. But something had to stand as testament to her experiences. In her last chapter, Bartel ominously states, the writing of this book has been an exercise in personal exorcism. I hope it has done haunting me, although for you, the haunting may just have begun. If it reads like a Gothic novel, it lived like one. Being unprepared for truth, I found it strange, much stranger than fiction. Her final line tolls like a funeral bell. If the spindrift has not reached you yet, it will, it will. And as if this wasn't enough, the house wanted more. Bartel's death came several years before Joel Steinberg moved into 14 West 10th Street and the horrific murder that occurred in his apartment became a frenzied media spectacle. In 1987, Steinberg, a then disbarred criminal defense attorney, moved into the property with his partner, Hedda Nussbaum, and their two adopted children, Lisa and Mitchell. His behavior became increasingly dark and violent, a real-life shining playing out in Greenwich Village. His former profession became the greatest irony. On November 1st, 1987, under the influence of crack cocaine, Steinberg struck six-year-old Lisa violently on the head inside their apartment. She lay unconscious and bleeding for 10 hours, when the battered Nussbaum finally was able to call 911. The child died at nearby St. Vincent's Hospital. At the time, doctors thought that if either adult had acted in a timelier manner, Lisa likely would have survived. In court, friends mentioned that Steinberg changed when he moved into 14 West 10th. The trial was one of the first to be televised in its entirety. Nussbaum agreed to testify against Steinberg in exchange for exemption from conviction for negligence. Her face showing obvious signs of physical trauma shocked audiences. Steinberg was convicted of manslaughter and served his sentence until 2004 when he was released. Nussbaum underwent numerous reconstructive surgeries and began working with domestic violence victims and retreated from public life until writing the book Surviving Intimate Terrorism. Mitchell was reunited with his birth mother. The unconscionable events earned 14 West 10th a new nickname, The Murder House. In Susan Blackhall's Ghosts of New York, she claims the caretakers admit the building is cursed. With all these accounts, it's easy to see why the address is dubbed the city's most haunted house. You won't find that on any of the real estate listings. But the fact that it hasn't been fully occupied for years in some of the most desirable and expensive housing in the country is telling. A New York Times article referenced in Langen Schmidt's account brings us back to Mark Twain, referencing a 1930s tale in which a woman and her daughter discover an elderly man with bushy white hair who appeared suddenly in their living room to state, my name is Clemens, and I had a problem here. I gotta settle. Bartell herself tells this story as relayed to her by the superintendent of the property. It's likely Spindrift is the primary source. Perhaps Twain's hasty exit had nothing to do with general housework after all, but an inherent paranormal mess in a structure born bad. I admit my own hesitancy to write all this, but I suppose it is inevitable. The house still haunts me just as Bartell thought it would. There don't seem to be any reports of Jan haunting the house. I certainly wouldn't want that for her spirit, and I pray she's finally found the peace she yearned for. One certainly cannot find it at that address. I tell those I guide on my tours that the house and I have an uneasy understanding. It doesn't like me and I don't like it. It's still difficult for me to breathe when standing out front to quietly relay its dread tales. The house shortened the breath of so many through the years, snuffing the life right out, hastening or prompting an unpleasant end. When asked if I'd ever go inside its apartments, I adamantly respond that I won't. Quite certain I'd fall ill or worse, like so many of the residents, Bartell noted. I realize this makes me sound paranoid, my senses as precarious as Bartell's psyche, but if I must be seen as an unreliable narrator, I would prefer to act out of an abundance of caution and steer clear of a curse. In seances mentioned in Spindrift, psychics note the appearance of a gray cat 
beside a woman clad in gray who reassures that everything's just fine. That's what the house would like you to think, but it lies. Thank you. History of Invisible Women, True Stories of America's Ghosts, will be out August 30th, co-authored by Andrea James and Elizabeth Carey Mahone, and yours truly, with an afterword by the beloved Stoker Award-winning and friend of KGB, Linda D. Addison. So yes, she is absolutely worth all the applause. She, we were, we were going to have her as the for, as the foreword, but her work was so good that we wanted it to be the last word. So she has the last word in our book, um, and uh, we really hope that you will uh, pre-order this because, like I said, we want to write more about this, and then I'll you know uh, come back shaking with a new story to tell you. Thank, thank you all uh, for being here. I do have copies of the Spectral City. If you like how I talk about ghosts, um, I do that in my fiction too. So um, I do have all three of the Spectral City trilogy available. Thank you all so much. That was pretty chilling. So, so Leanna, you actually do ghost tours as well. Like, I'm not yes. sure if everybody knows that. So, Burrows of the dead. Yes. Uh, so you can actually dead. travel around and, and yes. see see such uh, such buildings. That was amazing. I love that. We're gonna take a little break, um, ten or fifteen minutes. Please, as I said before, uh, buy a drink, hard or soft, uh, support the bar, and we'll be back in about ten or fifteen with John C. Foster. So stick around. My name is Rajan Khanna. I am filling in for Ellen Datlow, who is watching sea beams, sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate right oh, now. Great so. That was just me being a little batty, sorry. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm filling in for Ellen Datlow, and uh, I just want to reiterate what Matt said. If you weren't here before, I'll say it again. Um, KGB allows us to do this for free, and all that they ask is that you buy a drink. You can buy a soft drink, you can buy a hard drink, you can buy a drink for one of our authors, you can buy a drink for me, you can buy five drinks for me, and I'd be very happy. Um, so just keep that in mind. We want to support them. It's been a hard two years for everybody, but especially for bars and restaurants, so please support them. Um, I also want to just talk about what the upcoming readings are going to be. So uh, there's some really great stuff coming up for you guys. Um, it is the third Wednesday of every month, KGB, and I know it's easy to forget because, like, how do you know what the third Wednesday is? But usually your calendar function allows you to set that up, which I did many years ago, and now I always know when KGB is. We have some friends who are always like, oh, I didn't know it was this week. I'm like, guys, come on, get with the program. So, um, and it is usually guys, but anyway. Um, April 20th. Victor Laval and Robert Freeman Wexler will be reading. May 18th, Grady Hendricks and Alex Irvine. June 15th, Karen Hewler, who may be in this room right now. And Sam J. Miller. And then July 20th, Daniel Brown and Greg Frost. So, I mean, I set that in your calendar now if it's not already set. So. Um, and now it is my honor to introduce uh, John C. Foster, who is the author of the forthcoming horror novel Leech, the recent crime thr thriller Rooster, 
and four other horror novels, the most recent sorry, of which is Mr. White. His stories have been collected in baby powder and other terrifying substances. And he lives in Brooklyn with, his, with the actress Linda Jones and their dog Coraline. Also, he's really nice, which in my experience means that he's an amazingly terrifying horror writer. So please, please welcome John C. Puff. Thank you, Raj. Here we go. A little taller. Um, so uh, thank you, Raj, and thanks, Matt, and Ellen, and Absentia uh, for having me here. I love this reading series, and uh, it's wonderful just to be out here and see fucking people in person. Isn't that awesome? Um, thanks again to KGB, and please tip the bartender. Bartending's hard. We need their help. Um, and also, I thought just Lana knocked it out of the park. So, <laughs> she really raised the bar pretty high, so I'm going to lower it. <laughs> so, my novel, Leech, it's, uh, it's, it's horror um, with healthy doses of science fiction and the weird. It comes out in April. It will be launched at the first ever Ghoulish Book Festival in San Antonio, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I haven't been to Texas in about a decade, so that'll be fun. Um, and I am just going to read to you from the beginning. I think you'll get, a, get the gist of it pretty quickly. It's about a secret agent that isn't quite so stable. Leech, by me. <laughs> One. Low clouds scraped the tops of the Ozarks, and Leech hoped it wouldn't rain. He remembered learning how to tell the difference between the Wichitas and the Ozarks, what his granddad called the Hillbilly Hills. The Wichitas were proper mountains with something in the way of peaks, whereas the Ozarks had been pressed flat as if God put down a hand and leaned his weight on them. The road narrowed and began to wind up the mountainside before Leach screeched to a stop, Bertha vibrating before the white and tan county sheriff's car pulled across the road. Oh, sorry. He's a southerner, and this is written with a lot of southern diction, and I will try really, really hard not to fake a southern accent, because I, I can't. I can't, and it's bad. But if I... Apologies in advance. Um, <clears throat> he keyed off the ignition and listened to her engine tick in time with the buzz of insects, dabbing the hollow of his throat with a handkerchief and chewing on a minty toothpick. He studied the sides of the road and saw birds flitting among the coarse pines and bent oaks, the space beneath stuffed to bursting with rude shrubbery, shrubbery that would tear his linen suit to shreds. It was green with life and black with shadow and resisted the existence of the road mere feet away. The deputy who eventually emerged was significant of belly, if not height, and his boar's bristle of hair revealed rolls of fat at the back of his neck. If the mullet was designed with a particular man in mind, it was this deputy. Unfortunately, he deigned not to wear one. What you smiling at, boy? The deputy loomed at Leech's window, his gut threatening to come inside. Leech studied the belly before him noting the strained buttons, the tiny black hairs curling through the diamond-like separations of fabric where the shirt strained the hardest. He wished the man had worn an undershirt, but realized it was awfully hot. You hear me, boy? Deputy stepped back a pace so he could stare Leech down with his mirrored sunglasses, inflating Leech's smile by surrendering on the second damn move of the game. Leech pushed his Panama hat back and flipped open his billfold to flash a little sunlight back at the deputy. Oh, yes, sir, the deputy said that high school bully cop tone slinking away to be replaced by something unctuous. I didn't realize that. I thought there'd be more of you. Trucks, hazmat suits, and all that. The local law raked his gaze up and down Bertha, noting the mosquitoes in the Lincoln's grill and the dust around the wheel wells. Aren't you a bit underfunded? <laughs> a flick of the tongue fixed the minty length of wood dead center between Leach's front teeth, teeth, and he grinned. After an awkward pause, the deputy said, but don't you need, son? What did they tell you happened up in Durable? That little lab up there had an outbreak, an outbreak. Right, the deputy said, missing the language lesson. Leach rested one pale sleeve on the windowsill and leaned out. Do you think they'd really tell you the truth? It's a cover story? It's a cover story. Leach was beginning to feel like a kid who pulled legs off flies. He roused Bertha from her stupor, the big engine filling the air with an almost subsonic thrum. I'll just move my prowl car then. Thank you, deputy. 
Leash was grinning just a little bit as he drove past the county car and wound uphill, the, the light succumbing to shadow as he climbed. He disliked those beady-eyed types, and while it was a flaw in his own character, found it hard not to tease them. The Battle of New Orleans bugled from his pocket, and he gave himself a mental kick for forgetting to call Karen. Bertha agreed to a stop, and he set the emergency brake before pushing the door open with a screech of hinges to let in a little more air. Hey, he said when the phone found his ear. A hot wind pushed the treetops alongside the road and caressed the beads of sweat on his brow. He sent a prayer of thanks to the inventor of linen suits. I'm so sorry, baby, Karen's voice pleaded across the miles. Leach knew she was and said as much. You drinking, he asked. And she said not so much, and he said that was good. You ain't going somewhere dangerous, are you? Not to worry, honeybee, just some little hillbilly town where things have gone funny. Oh no, those inbred fellows will make you pregnant, and I don't see you as a daddy type. I promise to use protection, she giggled. Got your gun? No, he lied. Not that kind of job. You got Bertha? Bertha's a good old gal, and we'll take care of you. Always has. What are they calling you this time? Archibald Leach. He didn't tell her he'd chosen the name. Like Cary Grant, except with two E's. That's terrible. She laughed, and he touched the shiner beneath his left eye. It was a fair trade if he could he keep hearing those sounds of joy. The conversation went the way of such things, and she was calmer at the end, promising to only drink a little bit more, which calmed him as well. Remember to take your pill, she said. They don't let me out unless I do, he said, as if it was a joke and not a damn fact. My secret agent, man. Your secret agent, man. They said they loved each other, and he hung up, putting away the phone and drawing his Luger to check the magazine. He bent low, the movement awkward because of the big steering wheel. His sensitive fingers felt over the twin-barreled Derringer on his right ankle and touched the coil of a wire garrote wrapped around his left. He sent a quick text message, and the red light on the dashboard lighter blinked green, unlocking the small, air-powered injector that had to be released from control. If he tried to do it himself, he had. A heating coil fried the dose. Geronimo. He pressed the injector to his neck, grunting as it popped a load of activator into his system. He didn't know what chemicals were in the activator, some kind of formula more secret than the colonel's, but it burned the clozapine and risperidone from his veins like a fast-moving brush fire. The sweat dried on, the, on his forehead as his normal brain chemistry took hold. It usually took a minute, so he tapped the radio alive and spun the dial through static to discover choices ranging from preaching to country music to preaching accompanied by country music. <laughs> He pondered Bertha and Karen and thought himself a man gifted by the company of good women. Light flashed off the windshield and he spurred the big Lincoln into motion. The scales were lifted from his eyes. Bertha obliged Leach by slowing when they drove around a bend and saw three people jumping down beside the road. In the middle was a hard scrabble woman in a shapeless house dress displaying the squinty eyes common to these parts. Today, however, her peepers were as big as could be and her lipless mouth was stretched wide enough to show the gaps in her teeth. She leapt up and down, attention fixed on something overhead. Bouncing on either side of her were a boy and a girl in colorless hand-me-downs, neither more than ten. Fear ruled their faces. At noon, ma'am, Leach began when she laughed in his direction. Out of that car, son. Don't want to bang off the roof. As if on cue, a bright red cardinal smacked onto the Lincoln's black hood. Why y'all jumping around, Leach asked, pouring gravy over his words and ignoring the dead birds sprinkled over the asphalt. It's the rapture. We gonna be raptured. The woman jumped high enough that her children were jerked like fish on a line. Jump, children. Jump on up to his kingdom. Leach craned his neck out the window to study the gathering clouds overhead before taking a little video of the group with his phone. He panned beyond them and zoomed in on the colorful spatter of a robin. Beyond that was the broken form of a crow. Jump, jump! Leach made the mistake of studying the little boy's face as his lips formed the words, help us. Try kicking off those shoes, Leach called out. Lord don't want dirty shoes in his kitchen. The woman stopped bouncing in place as her face blanked, then warped into another grin. Right, right, she kicked off her shoes. Get those shoes off, she screeched at her kids. Leach continued up the road until they were lost around the curve, pretending he couldn't hear the crunch of bird bones beneath his wheels. He checked the mechanical clock on Bertha's dashboard, and the green glow of the radium dials allowed that it was only 3 p.m., despite the deepening gloom. 
He thumbed his phone to text the video back to HQ. Among his many sins was a proclivity to text and drive. When the photos didn't send, he grimaced at the improbability. Bertha had a powerful Wi-Fi transmitter in her belly, and dispensing messages was not usually a problem. The tree line opened up to the right, and he muttered, All right, then, as he cruised past a shadowy graveyard ringed by a tilting iron fence. A small crowd of people were digging at the graves and shattering tombstones with swinging shovels. One by one, their heads turned his way, faces distorted by extremities of emotion. Leach already knew the durable was going crazy and didn't much care about their particular story, so he put his foot to the gas. Three. He skipped two. <clears throat> Bertha opened her eyes with an audible snap, and powerful halogen rays wrenched details of road and tree from the concealing darkness. It was 3.11 p.m. and might as well have been midnight. He drove slowly, aware of scuttling in the underbrush, once slamming on the brakes when a passel of boys darted across the road naked as jaybirds. The stink of burning things rode heavily on the air. Pulses of pain clutched the back of his jaw. He filmed what he saw. The scampering children, a smoldering pile of furniture, deer bounding downhill, but was still unable to send the messages back home. Embracing the Boy Scouts' motto, he undid the snap on a shoulder holster. He wondered if Durable was actually a town or nothing more than hillbilly shacks scattered up the mountainside. The ivory house with its long veranda was something of a surprise, and he slowed, taking in the old man in the rocking chair who read beneath the amber glow of a hanging lantern. Oh, Atticus, Leach said, stopping the car to step out and touch the brim of his hat. I'm no country lawyer, son. His lips curved in a smile and sent seams running across his dark face. Leach grinned before waving a hand at the night. Whole mountain's going crazy, and you're sitting on your porch? It's been a long time building this porch, and I aim to enjoy it while I can. Things are that bad? Leech cocked his ear at the patter of rain. Can't you feel it? Feelings in my teeth hurt. My titanium hip is vibrating like a guitar string. The old-timer leaned forward in his rocker and lifted the perspiring glass of sweet tea from beside the chair. I'd invite you to join me, but you look like you're here for answers. He cocked his head. Is that rain? Leach could see specks falling through Bertha's headlight beams and jumping beams bouncing off the hood. He swept his palm across the warm metal and grimaced at the smear of bugs. Dead bugs, Leach said. Well, that'll happen. Is there a bit of town to Durable? What there is, you'll find when the mountain gets flat and the road levels out less than a quarter mile. Obliged. He glanced at the sinister press of clouds, lit from below by the town's glow up ahead. A trick of the light gave the roiling masses the appearance of glowing from within, of teeming with shapes that defied recognition. The rain of bugs continued to fall. Government man come to see what the other government men got up to, the old man said. Something like that. He lifted his hat and raked his damp hair. You know what they were doing up there? The DARPA folks? Working on a camera, a new kind of camera that sees through to beyond. Leach felt the first chill of contact as his mind engaged with the reality outside of his skull, like a submersible seeking to equalize pressure with abyssal depths. He ditched his chitlin act. How do you know? Because I've seen it. Most of us have. Hell, they started beaming the picture to everyone in town. The old-timer grinned around blocky dentures. The crack, crack, crack of a high-powered rifle drifted downhill. Leach nodded at the sound. After seeing the picture, everyone suffered a psychotic break. I seem psychotic to you. Most people are in their homes, praying or fucking or crying. Things people do when the TV screen turns to snow. And the rest? The old-timer fanned himself with a book. Some people are just assholes. A tumbling bat bounced off Bertha's roof. Four. Leach said, shit, as light flooded the Lincoln, and the grill of a pickup truck rushed at his window. The sound was enormous too vast for definition. His spirit was blown out of his body and the world tumbled. Five. Tiny hands, no more pencils. Tiny teeth, no more books. The wildly tattooed boys were too small to drag him all the way from Bertha's embrace. His legs still lingered inside her body while the car itself rested on the, her roof amidst the bushes. No more teacher's dirty looks. 
A kitchen knife punched into his shoulder, not deep, but painful enough to rouse Leech from his stupor. He flailed an arm, and the boy scampered back with his bloodied weapon raised high like a trophy. Another boy lifted a rock over his head and hurled it at Leech. He grunted as it bounced off his ribs, but it focused him, and he saw their bright, wild eyes. You get to tent. A boy with a Louisville slugger stopped mid-word when the Luger materialized in Leech's fist. They scattered, hooting and screeching like animals as he writhed free of Bertha and fought to stand upright against the pain of sprung ribs. He touched a finger to lips that had been mashed against his teeth before spitting out blood, knuckles whitening around the Luger's grip as he pushed through the undergrowth towards the sound of grinding gears, ignoring the thorns that ripped at linen and skin. They were scrambling like a troop of baboons atop a pickup truck with smashed headlights when he stumbled onto the road. The engine roared and the truck lurched before stalling. The starter motor whined and Leech sighted down his arm, aiming just over the hood because the driver was short. The windshield starred and the grinding starter motor stopped. An animal screech was flung from the truck's grill, which looked so much like teeth. He didn't know what the truck was trying to become and had little interest in finding out. A finger twitch sent a second bullet through the grill and into the guts of the vehicle. Bodies tumbled and the wild boys scattered as he sent rounds hurtling after them. A twitch of his thumb released the spent magazine and he slapped a fresh one into the butt of his pistol. The iron sight settled between bare shoulder blades before Leech caught himself and lowered his arm. What was he doing? This was not a moral question. He had no sympathy for the savage younglings who had snared him in their trap. He was wasting ammunition. He was not in control. He had to stay in control when he was activated. Leech touched his head and wondered if he had banged it harder than he thought. His fillings were vibrating enough to pop from his teeth, and he spat out another mess of blood. He had his doubts about old Atticus' understanding of events endurable. Something was at work on the people and seemed to be slipping tentacles into his own mind. He wondered what the invader found inside his noggin, if it found something to grasp onto, or if it, in turn, found itself caught like a fly in a trap. He pushed hair back from his head and brushed some bugs free, wishing he still had Bertha, or, failing that, his hat. If wishes were horses, he muttered and wished he had a horse. Having none, he resigned himself to the heel-toe express and limped up the road. He passed a brick school building spitting fire from its windows, the roof ablaze like a thatch of wild red hair. The misshapen lumps in the yard were likely corpses, but Leech ignored them in favor of a wooden sign welcoming him to town with the words, a friendly place. The sign ticked as it rocked in a fresh breeze, and a rain of water replaced the fall of chitin and wings. Leech tilted his head back and let the rain cool his face, staring at clouds crouched close overhead like children studying an anthill. He stuck out his tongue to catch a few drops before walking on, reaching out to tap the sign with a finger in passing. He was endurable. Six. Silent lightning danced below the billows of dark cumulus, presenting snapshots oversaturated with light so that the town appeared as a series of washed-out washed out black-and-white photos, a vision of the past. He leaned against a light pickup truck with a rounded hood common to the 54 Chevy and fought against vertigo. The pain in his fillings pulsed along with the electrical discharges in the sky. It was as time had lost its way, which might explain the lack of sound effects accompanying the light show. When the thunder caught up to the present, he expected it would be, the, be a doozy. I'm going to skip a couple of pages. In which he goes into Durable's version of a bodega for cigarettes and finds that the owners of the store have committed suicide because it's a kind of cheerful place. <laughs> he pushed his way outside and stood beneath the awning to commit his sin. Whispery lightning continued to flash as he unwrapped the cellophane, resigned to whatever complaints Karen might share if she smelled the transgression on his breath. The first drag off the lucky strike felt like he'd inhale a crown of thorns. He coughed, smoke bursting from his mouth, eyes watering. The nicotine rush hit his system and he felt lightheaded before his lungs remembered their old friend. He walked with steadier steps out into the street, weird wisps of fog curling around his ankles. Down the main drag, trudging past monochrome houses from another time, when he saw a stirring in the low mist, he dismissed it as another cat perhaps the store cat following in, in the hope of a meal. The chiaroscuro suggested motion where there was none, 
a corner of the eye shifting that tied his nerves in knots. He was striding across the set of a hammer film instead of durable Arkansas. Shotgun roared nearby and he heard muffled wailing. Fleshy smudges hinted at faces behind windows marking his passage. Eddies in the fog revealed a pale back and he stopped until his path was clear, unsure if he had seen a man or dog. When he passed between two churches facing each other across the street, he noted that the Seventh-day Adventists had won their war against the ill-prepared Methodists, who were scattered in wet lumps on the lawn below the smoldering remains of their wooden church. He caught the mouth-watering odor of a pig roast and knew that at least a few folks had died in the fire. The slaughter seemed to call for a gesture of words, so he said, fuck, and slogged on past. His cigarette was hanging like a limp dick by then, and he dropped it into mist that had risen to his knees. The image of those wild boys crawling low beneath the fog came to him, knives clutched between their teeth like TV pirates. His gun found his hand, and he passed it back and forth across his wake, but saw nothing that warranted shooting. Maybe the totality of his report should be, it was schizophrenic, baby. There was never a town. They'd pack him off to a padded room and never tell, tell Karen where he'd gone. He laughed at himself for thinking that where they kept him was anything better. The salt box house he shared with Karen was no more than a gilded cage. I'm coming, honeybee, he promised, and he knew he would get home. He'd crawled out of the Pine Barrens when things went strange and staggered away from the Yukon when reality ripped loose. He was the secret weapon they unleashed when the fabric tore and alien mathematics leaked into the world. The agency nobody had heard of wielding him like a barely understood instrument because he could see through the curtain. He could see. He could see. It was enough to drive a man mad. And I'll stop right there. Thank you. And thanks again, Matt. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. And thank you, Leanna. We're going to do a, a different thing. We started a little bit um, a few months ago. We're just going to do like a couple quick questions for the author. Anybody have any questions for the authors? Real quick, anybody? Raise your hand. No questions? Yes, question. I'm going to repeat it. I have a question for John. I'm wondering about the influence of your screenwriting and movie stuff on your, your fiction writing here. The question is the influence of screenwriting and movies on your writing. Yes. Um, can you say it into the mic just so I you get it over here? I'm yeah. going to step to the side here. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it has a big influence. Um, with screenwriting, uh, you're always struggling to compress everything into you know, roughly 120 pages or less. So I'm uh, super conscious of the, the idea of you know, uh, start a scene late and leave a scene early and constantly keep moving. Um, so I'm hyper aware of that even as I'm writing a novel, even though I have the space to play with there's something that there's a governor at the back of my head that's constantly moving me forward. And I like to do as much work as I can of storytelling via dialogue, like you would with a screenplay. Um, and I think it's a more interesting way to convey information. If you, can, if you have the, the conversation do double duty and deliver the exposition while you're having an interesting, useful conversation, um, it's sort of like you know, sugarcoating your medicine. When does Bleach come out? April, late April. The question was, when does Bleach come out? And it's late April. Leech. Le Sorry, Leech. Leech comes out late April. Leech, Leech comes out. Right. Leech. Or Bleach. Um, Bleach will make the spot come out. Um, that was awful. This is why I don't do comedy. Um, but you can pre-order now. Um, and my website, johnfosterfiction.com, there's a link that I put up. Any questions for Leanna? Yeah. So uh, Rajan asks, uh, as an actor, how does that inform Liana's fiction? That is my favorite question. Um, so as an actor, I am very character driven. So I'm very interested in what the character's interiority is. Um, with A Haunted History of, of Invisible Women, this was my first nonfiction, um, and so I was trying to make sure I was getting the characters of all of these women who really lived what they were all about. And so 
trying to get into their heads. Obviously, if there's extant text that they wrote, that's very helpful. Um, so in the case of Jan Bryant Bartell, so who I, I read um, about tonight, and so in terms of my fiction, um, it's really very character-driven. Um, similarly to John, just you know, dialogue is very, very key, but also just the psychological base I try to really put myself in the heads of every single one of my characters as if I was going to portray them on stage. And that, for me, brings a life to it that I really think is... I, I don't know where my theater background stops and my writing begins or vice versa. It's really all kind of a, a, um, a holistic whole because I was writing narrative fiction while I was on stage. And you know, it, was, it was what I was doing, and I've always been performing as well as being a writer, so that's always been kind of a joint pursuit and I really think it informs uh, one informs the other in both of our cases I think and I and I hope hope that shows in the writing too. I have a follow-up question for you. Yes. For this book, I know you read from the period extensively. Where was your go-to to find these women and how did you decide on the ten you chose as opposed to the other? Okay, so how did I, so yes, so thank you. Um, so yeah, I do have an extensive background in the 19th century. Um, so of course, uh, uh, my, my eye was to, okay, what Victorian women can I bring into this? Um, and I do have a background as a New York City tour guide, but the stories could not only be set in New York. That was one of the publishing uh, Kensington's parameters where you have to pick uh, women outside of just New York. So um, it really was places that I had been to to choose these women for this personally, places that I had been to or places that I wanted to go to um, or places I had a personal connection to because really the personal connection really helped us get behind and through and into these stories. So they really were stories that spoke to all of us one way or another. And then if we couldn't get to the site in question, um, either it was a place, when I'm writing about Cincinnati, Ohio, that's where I grew up. Um, you know, so I, I, that's something that I had a connection with. Um, in the case of the Winchester Mystery House, I booked a plane ticket to go there because I'm not about to write about that incredible place without going there. So um, it was a great excuse to go to the Winchester Mystery House. It was something I'd always wanted to do. So it was a bit of a bucket list. Exactly. It's, oh, oh, yes. All, 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 always keep your receipts. Um, so, so that's honestly, it was really an, an emotional, personal connection to um, to these women, and also they had to be different from one another. So we really had to make sure that we were offering a range of perspectives, um, and and that fit in these certain tropes that we're trying to dissect. So. Um, it, again, we, we picked 30 because they were ones we were emotionally uh, really drawn to, but there were so many more that are on the cutting room floor that we hope we can continue with. So thank you. That's a great question. Thank you. Whoops. Let's, 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 let's get, make sure we get... Uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, please. Yes. Any other houses that you're haunted by? Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. So, so, so definitely, uh, the question is: Are there any other houses that you're haunted by? Absolutely. Um, the Morris Jamel Mansion, which is in our book, that's Manhattan's oldest house. It is up, uh, up. So, I think 161st. 61st. Thank you, Gordon. Uh, 161st. Um, please go. Please visit. You can book an overnight paranormal investigation, and you can stay the night in that wonderful house where Aaron Burr died. So, um, so it's a that's an incredible house, and Eliza Jamel haunts it quite frequently. Um, we've had our own experiences there. So, um, uh, my co-author Elizabeth Carey Mahone uh, took the lead on that chapter. Um, we stayed there overnight for her birthday one year and had a very interesting experience with Eliza herself. Um, and the Winchester Mystery House definitely is still haunting me. Um, that place is just incredible, and Sarah Winchester's history as somebody who was quite maligned as a quote-unquote mad woman when she was not at all. Um, that's really wanting to get her story correct was something that haunted me. So sometimes I'm not sure if it's always the house or if it's also the women behind the house as well. Um, and so I think that um, another great one that's here in New York, because we're here in New York, that you can go visit is Gertrude Treadwell of the Merchant's House Museum. 
She is very, very vibrant there. Um, she lived there for 93 years and just really never left. Um, and so we write, wrote about her merchant's house very nearby here as well. Um, please do support them. Both Morris Jamel and Merchant's House Museum were both really hit hard during the pandemic. So as we're getting out back in the world and they, they do do some virtual things as well and they have, um, do support them if you can. Thank you. Last question. Anyone have a question for John? Yes. Um, with the Leech character, is how did you come to him, and is this the only story with him? Or uh, the question is, how did John come to the Leech character, and is this the only story with him? So yeah, so that's interesting. Um, <laughs> I wrote a story. This story, the the part. Uh, you heard part of a, the, the first Leech story that I wrote for an anthology, uh, a, a subcall, and it turns out I had written two other stories, um, one which serves as the final chapter in the novel now. Um, it was not initially featuring Leech, but I realized, holy shit, this is fucking Leech, and so I just changed it. <laughs> And then I had another one that wasn't published yet um, that I had just been sitting on, and I went, oh my God, leeches everywhere. And so I tweaked that. And then I had these three stories, and I thought, okay, is this enough for a novella? It makes no sense without connective tissue. And fortunately, I, I have uh, some great friends in a, in a writing uh, crit group, and I had showed them stuff, and, and everyone responded really well to Leech, um, which makes me happy, because I think he's the protagonist I've, I most enjoy writing. Um, my protagonists tend to be really broken and, and often what I call the solitary asshole. And so he's a little more fun, even though he's kind of an asshole. Um, and so it was suggested that they'd like to see more Leech. And so I thought, I will write more Leech. And then I had enough for a novel, and I went, holy shit. <laughs> um, and I talked to... Um, my friend and publisher, uh, Max Booth III, um, at uh, Perpetual Motion Machine Publishing, he had published the anthology that had the first Leech story in it. And I said, hey, you know, I, I wrote a book. And he said, cool, let me see it. And we were going to publish it um, earlier during the pandemic, but then pandemic just made us all gray and sad, so we didn't. Um, but then we talked again about doing it, and, uh, and so it's coming out in, uh, in April. Well, if you haven't read Leanna Renee Heber or John C. Foster yet, you absolutely should. I think tonight is a perfect example of how amazing both of them are. Thank you so much to both of them for reading us for reading for us tonight. Thank you all of you for showing up in person. And they Thank still you. have their books here. And yes, they have books for sale. So please come up. Buy a book, get them signed, but also, most importantly, buy a drink. All of you, I'm looking at you. You didn't drink, you didn't have a drink. Hard us off, please. Please, support the bar, support the series. Thank you so much. We'll see you next month with Victor Laval and Robert Freeman Wexler. Have a good night. You've been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series. Check out our website at kgbfantasticfiction.org and click on support if you'd like to help keep the series going. Anyway, that's our show. Thanks for listening and see you next month.